Welcome to the Zion Art Podcast, dedicated to exploring the art and culture of Latter-day Saints through interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars. The podcast is presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Annie Poon, a visual artist working in a huge array of media, from painting to sculpture, etching, and film. Her work has been shown on Nickelodeon, PBS, and at the National Gallery, Brooklyn Museum, New Museum, and Museum of Arts and Design. She is one of 90 artists invited to participate in the Certain Women Art Show, opening October 4th in Salt Lake City. I am so happy to finally be talking to you, Annie Poon. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I feel I feel welcome. Well, we we've got you. If if people hear a little difference in the sound from from how we normally are, it's because you are in New York and I am in Salt Lake City. Yes, I'm and, right here in the in Midtown. So I got to say, I've been um, I've been lurking a little bit on your social media. I always lurk on your social media. I love you. <laughs> I love I love your Instagram feed and. Yesterday, you were at the Dutch exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, right? On Saturday. It was Saturday. Yeah. Okay. Revisiting, revisiting. Oh, my gosh. They had so many wonderful things. It, I went immediately to their website. I'm going to be there in a few weeks um, if, if everything goes to plan, and I'll be seeing the show, too. And there was, there was one piece that you put up that is one of my absolute favorites. It's uh, Still Life with Fruit and Glassware by Wilhelm Kalf. And you, you highlighted it, and it has that lemon peel that is circling down out of a Chinese export um, dish, porcelain dish. And the only reason I bring it up is because as I'm lurking, you sent me off on a tangent. I go to the website for the Met, and there is this commentary on the painting that's from a contemporary who says, um, talking about Kalf, saying, he surpasses all others in still life which could be argued by Clays and Dahim and all those other guys who were in, in the show too. But he says, but he never knew how to explain his images, which he depicted. This is the complaint of the contemporary Dutch critic. that <laughs> He does great images, but he never knows how to explain them. Which then, as I'm sitting down to talk with you, who you share very eloquently what you're doing on social media on a, on a regular basis, I kind of wonder... Um, and I know it's an odd way to start an interview, but I just it kept growing bigger in my mind. As you've done social media, how important has the explanation become versus the image? Well, when I go to a museum and I look at art, I get a little... This is just new. I get a little frustrated if I have to read the explanation because I want it to just strike me viscerally and visually, but then I always love it more when I read the explanation. And with my work, I feel like it loses so much of its meaning if you don't explain it because I'm speaking in code visually. Hmm. So you feel like on some level as a viewer and as somebody who's making it that you've got a love-hate relationship with it. You've got the idea that on one hand you don't, you want to have your own reaction and on the right. I want to have my own reaction to other people's work, but I want to talk about my work to as many people as I can find. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's something that uh, as as somebody who's trained as an art historian, I have a real I have a real love hate relationship with this because I there are some works of art that I don't want to ever 
intellectualize. I never want to learn what anybody else has to think or say about them because I want my, selfishly, I want my own reaction to them. I don't think it's selfish. I just think that that's, I think that's how I am. But if it's the artist who's speaking to me, I feel differently versus some like third party. That's true. That's, that's completely true. If I, if I saw a journal entry about, for, for instance, Keith Haring, I love him because of his journals. I love his mm. work, but I don't know if I would love it as much if I hadn't read his journals and I go back to them and it just, the artwork is kind of a byproduct of the person who I'm interested in. If I'm mm. not interested in the person, then the work has a, a lot less relevance for me and meaning. Do you find, though, that there are two different skills, the idea of explaining your work versus making it, and that some artists just don't have it? Well, you know what? I'm um, not going to talk about other artists. I want to talk about you personally. Have you always had no, the ability right. to explain your true. own... Yeah. The, 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 have you always had the ability to explain your own work? That's the one thing where I'm not tongue-tied. People have even said that when I'm... Uh, upset or confused or any of these things that I get this scary quiet that comes over me because I don't I don't know what to say I don't know how to react quickly but when it's about my own work I just can't shut up hmm. <laughs> and I and it comes out it comes out clearly things come out of me that I didn't even realize were there but it just I am on a process of discovery with the person when I'm explaining my work yeah yeah and do you get, do you find that uh, you were making work pre-social media, <laughs> you know, this is, this, I, I don't know if you feel the same way I do. I think we're about the same age. Um, I'm 40 and I, I feel like social media has, it feels like it's always been there, but I know that there was a, I heard this term recently called zennials, that apparently anybody who grew up with typewriters, I grew up with electric typewriters. Yes, um, I did too. You did too, and with rotary phones or with and with phones that were still connected to walls, that if you've got that plus the uh, the ability to work with technology, you are officially a zennial. What the heck is that? It's Gen, 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 it's Gen, just... Gen X plus millennial. It's the idea that you you oh. you remember and can you live in an analog world, and yes. you can comfortably work in a digital world as well. But assuming that your art was it, that, that there was a time before Instagram where you were making art. Has Instagram, social media, changed how you interact with an audience with your work? Yes, because before social media, um, in high school, I didn't have a job besides making art. I would just, you know, make posters for my friends of you know, whatever they wanted, fairies and dragons and all these things. And they would see it on someone else's wall or they'd see it as I was delivering it at school and then they would want that. But with social media, it's changed it because you let people into your home and see your process as you're working on it. And people feel like they're with you. They feel like they can see you developing it. You don't even have to be making it for them. And they feel almost a sense of ownership over the piece because they've been a part of the process. Hmm. And I think that makes people want to buy it. When I see something uh, on social media, if it's a, for instance, there's an artist who creates these blue and white vases with animals and you know plants on them, which I wouldn't even stop at. But when I see the video of her making them, 
I see her carving away the negative space. I see her, you know, the firing and all that. And it, it just makes me want to own that piece. And it's like you said, it's almost like she's explaining it to me by showing me how she made it. Um, one of the things you mentioned is in high school, you were doing, you were drawing, you were doing art, you're doing posters. You grew up in Connecticut, right? Yes, New Canaan, Connecticut. New Canaan. It's kind of a bedroom community of New York. Would that be accurate? My dad worked in the city. He worked in the city. So what was it like growing mm -hmm. up in New Canaan? I didn't realize how lucky I was until the last few years when I started reflecting on my childhood and comparing it to um, the experiences of a lot of others who didn't have the chance to be around nature um, the way I did. Hmm. So I was always outside. I was always exploring. I was learning. I was building things. And that was our playground outside in the woods and on the lake. And we learned so much about animals and just our imaginations ran free. We, we would build these little villages. Uh, sometimes we would build them human size so we could live in them. Oh, my heavens. Out of out of trees we built little houses you know with dirt floors and swept the floors and um when i wasn't playing outside you know i was drawing in my little basement bedroom so it was idyllic um, my parents unplugged the tv and they told us for you know 10 years that the tv was broken and <laughs> one year one year we just sort of figured out that the only thing that was wrong with the TV was that it was unplugged. <laughs> <laughs> so does this mean that you had to catch up in all the cultural references later? <laughs> no, because they would record um, all the greatest movies, Batman, not Batman, um, Ghostbusters, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Superman, um, um, all these great movies, they would they would make recordings somehow and give it to us, and we would watch them in the basement again and again. So I used to be able to tell the whole Ghostbusters movie by heart, and we just we love seeing those old movies now because if that was our childhood, it was just that little teeny library of movies. That's inc that's incredible. It sounds like you were living in kind of a, a fairy tale childhood that way. I was yes, and that's why. Almost all of my work, I would say all of my work, comes from the joy that I had at that time and that foundation. At what point did you know you wanted to do art for a living? When I was four or five in kindergarten. Oh, my heavens. Um, they, they came in with a chart. My teacher held up a chart and it said, fireman, nurse, doctor, policeman, artist. Which one do you want to be? And I knew that I loved music. I could already play music by ear. And I knew that I loved to draw. And so I just I decided on that day that I was going to be an artist. Did people take you seriously when you said that inside and outside of your home? I didn't really announce it. I just did it. My hmm. mom said that I was always an artist. I mean, when, even when I was three years old, she gave me a little journal. And she said, draw a picture and then I'll tell you, I'll have you just let me know what it's of and I'll write it on the top. So that was actually the first time I think that I really drew. And she told me that there was never a time that I wasn't an artist. Hmm. So I never announced it. And when I got married, I told my husband, I'm an artist. And he said, no. no. <laughs> an artist, you know, an artist is, is so 
someone who, you know, he had like this Picasso level view of what an artist was. And I remember feeling so proud when uh, finally he said, you are an artist. <laughs> he's a he's a photographer uh, uh, and, and a, a, a serious photographer himself. That's how he makes his career. I'm going to have I have questions, but I'm going to wait until a little later about you two and, and, and how you influence one another. Before I do that, at some point you I mean, it, it became very serious. You went to the to to the, uh, the the school for visual arts in New York, which is a legendary school, one of one of the the, the preeminent school for, for schools for a whole variety of people who go into the visual arts. Um, how did you choose to go there? I wanted to go there because I wanted to study the culture of the art of New York City. I wasn't interested in art in general. I was interested in the energy of, the, of New York City. And the main reason why I picked that school was because that was where Keith Haring went, and he was my idol. So tell so us about Keith Haring. Was, yeah, 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 go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. So, you know, he lived a very short life, but in his just his few years that he was on this earth, he went from making chalk scribbles in the subway to designing blimps and painting blimps in Europe. And he was he just covered everything that came into his sight with his little graffiti. And I remember seeing a picture of an installation he did at the School of Visual Arts where he did like this wallpaper style um, graffiti. And I was so excited the day that I was chosen to create an installation in that same window. So that's amazing. Which program were you involved in in the in the school for for visual arts? I studied drawing and painting, but uh, my last year, my last semester, I was never to be seen in the painting studios because I was just living in the video lab in the sculpture building. Were they were they open to that? Were they open to their students moving to where they felt like was best for them, or were they pretty strict? They really didn't have rules there. So the only thing that came up that really that was, I guess, slightly negative was that I couldn't get an A plus because I was never there. But the fact that I came, you know, for the open studios at the end of the year and had a whole suite of videos made out of paper just kind of blew their minds and they they loved it. I mean, I got I got these amazing reactions and um, yeah, it was it was an, it was a little explosion that happened happened there everyone was pleased that's a happy ending that's a good that's a good ending but before we get to the happy ending i was talking with my wife last night who you knew in new york before before she knew me and she she described that she had seen you some of your student work and i don't know what stage in your your uh your student life you had done this she said it was a clock and it had been meticulously painted and as we were talking, um, one of the questions that, that, that uh, I wanted to ask, and, and she wanted to ask, because I said, okay, Tat, if you were here talking to Annie, what would you ask? And she said, I want to know about the evolution of, of her style. If you can even, style's the right word. It's, it's probably not the right word. But if I were to see early work from you in your education versus where you ended up with those videos that were paper cut, what what did that progress look like? Well, basically, my high school 
art class, took a field trip into New York City. I went into the painting galleries. I saw these amazing paintings by great men, and I thought, I'm going to be one of these great men. I'm going to be a great painter. I'm going to rival, you know, all these people. I'm going to be, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be here in the MoMA. And so I worked really hard. You know, I went from uh, drawing to painting to, you know, studying all these great artists and even imitating them. And then, you know, I was, I was making thoughtful paintings, but then my husband had one little conversation with me and he said, these paintings do not reflect the joyful person that I see inside of you and the woman that I married. Can you do something that expresses that joy that I do see within you? And at that time, on that day, I literally took everything that I had learned in art school. I threw it out the window and I went back to doing the exact same projects that I did as a kid. I literally mm -hmm. went back to one project that I had staged in a playhouse in my in my uh, playroom and I created an animation out of that little play that I did with my sister and that was called the roly-poly pudding and that was really the start of my new style. And all of my work that I do now is just based on the doodles that I made as a kid. Wow. So the style has nothing to do with what I learned in art school. It's all, I think, I think I had already learned everything I needed to know before I even went to art school just because I spent so much time having fun and drawing and doodling. So how, what, what is your advice to when young artists approach you and they're looking at these be, this bewildering array of options and they say to you, I want to be an artist and you live in New York and you've gone to the School for Visual Arts and you have works in museums and, and they just, they want a path. They want an answer. What, mm -hmm. what do you, what do you, what's your advice that you give? I would say go for it because who knows, maybe if I hadn't gone to that school, I, I wouldn't know how to think as an artist. They didn't really teach you technique there. They just encourage you to explore and they encourage you to just try everything. And I think that if I had not gone to art school, I would have been depressed. I would have felt like I was, you know, wasting my time. And I think that the school taught me how to think, and I don't think that I would have known to throw everything away if I hadn't gone there. It's interesting, because you hear that from people who go into other, from other disciplines. You hear that from people who, for example, go to law school and say, oh yeah, I didn't learn how to actually be a lawyer until I started doing law, but law school taught me how to think. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting. It's interesting that, because I think we do, we put a, a lot of expectations on artists to produce a certain kind of art and to do it in a certain way, and we are always comparing artists to other artists. And it's just so problematic when, when a lot of it is is very personal and incomparable and can't be taught. I, I just have to say something here real quick. Um, I got, I had a phone call with an artist last week and she was saying, um, I want to be an animator, but I don't know what style and I don't know what I want to make animations about. And, you know, I'm, I'm making walk cycles. I'm, you know, she was just trying to learn the techniques, trying so hard to learn the techniques. And I said, I think that you need to work on identifying who you are as a person 
find out more about yourself so that you develop tastes, you develop, you develop uh, lines back into those past experiences that are most important. You really have to be able to identify who you are as a person, not just as an artist. Hmm. And then once you find those stories that are important to you, it doesn't really matter what technique you use. You can hmm. express you can express it without even learning technique almost. Wow, that's great advice. I'm going to make a bold statement. I'm, are, are you ready? Ready. Okay, this is my bold statement. <laughs> it's that I would submit that you are one of the most prolific depictors of the Book of Mormon in church history, along with Arnold Freeberg, Minerva Teichert, and Walter Wren. Yes, I've illustrated it a couple times. And, and I think that, that there, are many, there are much fewer artists working on Book of Mormon subjects than are working on New Testament subjects for the most part. I think that is just culturally what has been the case since really the mid-90s. And, and I, I think that um, I've been following you for the past you know, several years and watching your feed. I don't see anyone who's depicting so prolifically the Book of Mormon as you are. And I want to know how you, how you started doing that. You have a, well, before I do, you have a book that has come out called... Um, you're, you've, the, the, it, it, it's draw your way through the book. Draw your way through the book of Mormon. Draw your way through the book of Mormon. And and yes. I want to know before we talk about the book, I want to start at kind of just just more generally, how you started using the Book of Mormon as source material for your work. Well, you, you have so many lessons on, you know. Let's talk about different ways to read the scriptures. Let's talk about how to make it interesting, and. I think I just thought, well, why don't I just, you know, make, go through the Book of Mormon, read it, find my 50 favorite verses and make etchings about them. So I did that and I spent about a year making these etchings and then I thought, well, this was really fun, but I don't want to stop drawing from the Book of Mormon. So I'm just going to start at the beginning and I'm just going to make an illustration for each chapter as I read. I'll just read one chapter a day, make an illustration, and I did that, and it became this hourly, hour-long ritual that I did every morning, and I felt like Joseph Smith going to the sacred grove, you know, just praying for inspiration and making these sketches and showing them on Instagram only to keep myself accountable. And when I got to the end of the Book of Mormon, I went back and I read it most, you know, many of the illustrations. And then after that, I continued on and I did the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, and the New Testament. And then I just left off at, with the Old Testament just because I'm not ready. That would take me five years. So when a lot of artists um, who are Latter-day Saints make work, um, one of the questions that always has that that always has to be asked is, you know, who are they? Who are they making it for? Uh, maybe that's not the right way of phrasing it. Here's another way of saying it: We've got a lot of great artists right now in 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 the church, and we don't have a lot of great collectors. We don't have a corresponding robust market, at least in my opinion. And so, when you're making this, it sounds like it started off largely as a personal project. You said you were doing a lot of it for your own study and your own. Um, own accountability, putting it online. Was there a corresponding 
um, idea of, oh, there is an audience for this that isn't just other artists. And I'm not talking about like the vulgarity potentially of I'm going to make this and I've, I've got a marketing stream and I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how it was accepted and seen. What was the, what was the reaction as you were making visual work of the Book of Mormon and did that, I guess I'll just leave it there. What was, your rea- what was the public reaction? Well, I guess I didn't feel like I was getting a whole lot of likes, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, up to 100, between 30 and 100 likes. But I didn't realize that there were people who were looking at my drawings every day as a part of their scripture study. And the only way I figured that out was because if I ever, you know, sort of got into a slump and stopped making them for a couple of days, I would get emails. Or people would come up to me in church and they would say, what's happened? Why aren't you? Have you stopped? You know, I really, I look forward to those. They, they, you know, they lift me up every day and they make me think differently. And, you know, people would start asking me to illustrate their favorite verses wow. and some children some parents would send me their children's drawings that they had done of their favorite illustration of their favorite verses so even though there wasn't this loud you know uh, response when i when i slowed down or stopped people would let me know they wanted me to keep going so some of the pieces that you've got in drawing your way through the book of mormon which by the way we bought several copies of as we went on a six-week vacation with our kids to Europe, and so we all we like we, we took it and we 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 absolutely loved it and enjoyed it. So I've got a full, I'm, I fully endorse endorse it. And my wife and I found that we would use it more than the kids would often. We we were all using it, and I I thought it it seemed like the book. Um, and there were some things that you it, it, you took from your from your work that you'd previously made. It seemed like there were some things, like uh, let's draw Jesus, that that were made specifically for the book. Um, Mike, one of the questions I I have about this, and I I don't know how to succinctly say it. So I'm just going to do stream of consciousness here. I spent a lot of time working on Arnold Freeberg's estate after he passed away, and I found almost. 500 drawings that related to the Book of Mormon and about at least 150 of them that he never turned into the final 12 paintings. He had to work with a committee and, and with the first presidency to come down on a number of 12. And you get the sense often that they didn't pick the subjects that he wanted them to pick. Oh. I think if you're Walter Rain, um, he has a little more freedom than, uh, than Arnold Freeberg did. He submits things. You know Walter Rainey. He's somebody you've known for a long time, um, I, I, I believe. And, but he still has to kind of consider on some level that this may go in the conference center. Um, when, you're Miner- when you're Minerva Teichert, who's working absolutely in the wilderness where there was no real art patronage for her, she did over 300 images, but she was really the first one before Freeberg, before anybody coming up with kind of canonical subjects to depict. But I think of all of those, you know, the question I guess is, is when you're choosing Book of Mormon subjects, were you conscious of, 
of of that these people had to be conscious on some level of the weight of responsibility. Minerva, that she was the first person ever doing it. Mm -hmm. um, Freeberg, that he was working with with uh, with the first presidency. Rain with the committee often. How how did you did you choose your subjects or did you just not did you did you were you even conscious of what you were choosing or not choosing? It's just fascinating to me that there's so few people working in it and 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 to see the subjects you were choosing. I wanted to know how you arrived on at them. Oh, well, at the beginning, it was really hard. I couldn't do a completed image right away. I would sketch it. I would have maybe three drawings that I would do and then I would come up with the final. And it was it was a struggle. But as I got into it, I started to recognize themes that just would surface. Themes like fire, water, um, the Holy Ghost, birth, you know. Um, melancholy was a really big one. Hmm. Humor was a really big one. And so once I started learning my own language, I was able to speak it more fluently. I just had to do a lot of drawing before I could really figure out who I was as an artist at that time. Did you find that as you were doing subjects that you were consciously aware of? I, mean, I grew up with Freeberg. It's very hard to get Freeberg imagery out of my head. You know, the muscly, <laughs> the muscly people. Um, yeah. Your work strikes me as being being very much its own thing. Um, do you find that um, that that you were? Um, and, and as Mormons in general, I guess this is part of the question, I think if you were to do a stick figure on fire, a lot of Mormons would be able to say, Abinadi, right? Mm -hmm. They'd be able to immediately pick mm -hmm. up on some universal themes. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, I see what you're saying. So what, what would happen would be the first image that would come to mind would be the, you know, Arnold Freeberg image. Yeah. Or it would be, uh, you know, the image that I'd seen of Christ holding a lamb. Or usually the image that would come to mind immediately would be a, the scene, the prophet holding out his arms, speaking to the people. Hmm. And I literally had to discard the first image that came to my mind almost every single time because it was always something that I had seen before. Hmm. And so then I would just have to literally close my eyes and say, what if this scripture was written about my life, about me. Forget the scene, forget who was there. Imagine that the prophet was speaking directly to me or that God was actually speaking directly to me. And I have to come up with something from my own experience to draw. Mm. So it was like, first I had to reject and then I had to pray and look inward for every single one. I, that, is, that is what I was after. That is what I was trying to find. Because I think it's so... I, I don't want to make this sound negative, but I think that we as Latter-day Saints are used to a kind of biblical costume drama, mm -hmm. right, with the works that we do. And, yeah. and that's, not, that's not a criticism. It's just an, a kind of an, a social anthropological answer of it's an observation of we expect images to look a certain way. And that comes with a kind of burden of influence and expectation and, and it, it makes it really hard for an artist to negotiate their own expression sometimes out of it. 
And when I look at your works, they are so original and and also so universally communicable, at least in my experience. That when I look thank at you. that when I yeah, well and when I then thank you. When I look at them I find that um, even though they are not like you said, the first image that comes to my mind, I, they still don't feel they don't feel foreign to me, and and that that's got to be hard work. That's got to be very hard work to do that. Well, it's it's so it's just fun because I really <laughs> do feel inspired as I'm making them. I feel like I'm a partner with the Lord, and, and I. If I ever start thinking about them as like trying to make something different than someone else or, you know, trying to do something that other people are going to want, I can't succeed that way. The only way that I can succeed is to think of it as a gift from the Lord. I mean, I remember when I moved to New York City, I was so excited. I had tried so hard to get here for so long and I finally got here and I remember telling the Lord, if I ever make it to New York City, I'm going to big project to say thank you and every project I did I thought when am I going to make the thank you project and by the time I started making you know the Book of Mormon work or other work around that it didn't even have to be religious but by the time I was making these I realized that every project we do should be in gratitude to the Lord so I realized all my pieces were thanks you have an image that you sent me of, of a work that you've been sewing that's life-size um, of a woman. Can you, can you describe what this is? I'll put images of it up on our, on our site, <laughs> but, 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 but describe what it is. Okay, so it's a, it's a cross-section of a, of a human. It's, it's life-size. It's my size. I painted it on fabric, and then she, she looks like a skeleton. And, but, you know, I did kind of stylized organs and, you know, a little smiling heart. And then you can see her hair, which is my hair. So she's a portrait of me, but she's my size. And then what I did was I stuffed her with quilt batting. Well, yeah, upholstery and quilt batting. I stuffed her, I sewed her as you would sew a flat doll. And then I quilted along all the lines of the figure so that she becomes kind of like I don't know I just got really into so I've been into sewing my whole life and I never knew how to bring it into the work but she's sewn with black thread so that every every part of her is puffy like a pillow so she I don't know she's like a pillow person she's like a quilted cutout it's hard to explain I think the picture will 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 uh, will will show people and you've got wonderful pictures of your process when I saw it, I, I wanted to ask immediately, um, and even in this, even in our conversation now, you've talked about, um, you've talked about film, you've talked about drawing, you've talked about etchings, and here you have a piece that's painted on fabric and sewn. How do you know when you when you want to, a work to be in a particular medium? How do you? How does that? How did? How does it go from idea to medium? Um. Well, I see it beforehand, and it just it just pops into my mind. I, you know, what happens is I, I become obsessed with with one thing. Um, I lately it's been sewing, so I took a draping class recently, just because I thought you know it's something that I wanted to learn, and who knows maybe it'll make its way into my art. You know, making clothes or 
working with the dress form. And then I was just pondering, how can I make something that I can put into a show? It'll be a big case, but I don't have to make a crate for it. I don't have to worry about it being rolled and curled from rolling it up. I don't have to worry about it getting wrinkled. And I was just pondering on this and suddenly I saw that image of that skeleton, that quilted skeleton. It came into my mind and I just sort of tried to stare at that vision to get a closer look of what it was and how it was made. And it, that's how it came to me and that's, that's how I decide what I'm going to do is that it just sort of comes to me in this little vision. <laughs> Is this your first version of it? I think I saw on your Instagram that you'd, you'd sewn other things as well. Yes, I made, I made a very small one, and then I made one that was a bust portrait of myself. And then I knew I was ready to make the big one. I knew I wanted to make the big one the whole time. I just didn't know exactly how it would work out. So by the time I made the life-size one, I was kind of a pro at it. So I want to I talk about the work that you're doing for the Certain Women Show which is, after all, the, the uh, wonderful excuse we have to be able to talk together. It's called Wild Horses. It's a, it's a short film that you did. Um, can you describe the work of art for us, the, the, the uh, animation? Sure. Okay, so Moy Bridge was a photographer who captured the animated figure by setting up cameras and photographing as the figure moved so he created uh this piece where he got a horse and he had the horse gallop and he just had the cameras flashing boom 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 all the way along and then he had this series of photographs which i then took i cut out the horse and i turned it into an animation by just using all of his images i put it on a piece of crinkled paper and i just had a loop of the horse running um so that's what the piece looks like and then the audio is a poem that i wrote 22 years ago and sort of kept secret until last night when i talked to my sister about it in preparation for the show but the poem goes over the animation and there's also a musical soundtrack and this piece uh I don't know if it's my most personal piece. It might be because I've I've been too shy to even show it to anyone, and you're really the first person I'm talking to about it. So. Well, I'm grateful that you shared it with me. I was really moved by, I was really moved by it. Um, I was, and I was wondering about where the words came from because they, and and also the music. Where did the music come from? I collaborate with my little sister, Taylor. We, we write a lot of music together. So she came out here and we worked on it together just a couple months ago. I, it's I, violin. So. I love that you, um, that you use Mybridge, too, Edward Mybridge. Um, I remember having a book of his work when I was a little kid. My favorite was the, uh, the woman with a, with a pot on her head jumping over a chair. <laughs> because he became he be, his work became source material for so, for so many artists who were trying to determine how how the body worked in motion of an, of of all kinds of humans and animals and and I thought okay, what kind of painting needs a woman with a water jug on her head jumping over something <laughs> but but the the horse um and I assume that this is going to be projected in the space for the certain women show the Certain Women Show um, has been giving instructions to, 
to people. I think they've given the same instructions to every artist who's in the show. And it comes from what, mm -hmm. the, what President Nelson said in the last, um, the last general con um, women's conference. Um, how, did you, how did you get from their challenge to this particular work, which you said is your most personal, potentially? Oh, so they, so the statement says that we, the part of the statement that stood out to me, the Relief Society statement, which he told us to study, said that we were supposed to increase faith in Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ and his atonement. And I wrote several versions of my response and my statement and what it would be, and I was really struggling with it because it just, I felt like I just, didn't have the proper motivation to write a piece when I already had something that I had written that completely explained my motivation in, in life, my my theory. And I thought back to this piece, I thought, well, you know, I've already done it. So I think it's time to present this piece. So that's how I, that's how I chose to bring that poem out and finish the soundtrack. And uh, yeah, I, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. It does. It also makes me wonder. It is so. It it is so personal. Do you, um, when you put something out there that's very personal, um, are you anxious to hear how people react to it, or do you not care how people react to it? What is your reaction to other people's reactions? Well, I'm really excited when people tell me that it helps them in some way and it makes them want to look more introspectively. Uh, I love hearing people's reactions and I, lo I love it so much that sometimes I'll take their reaction and I'll make it part of my meaning mm. of my work because I feel like it's kind of a collaborative experience to arrive at the meaning of a work when the work was made subconsciously almost. Mm. Mm. That kind of goes back, I guess, full circle to this original question of, of, of the, the, just the cycle of putting something out there, needing to say something about it, getting reactions to it. Um, I love that you embrace um, not only that you're willing to share something so personal, which is something I think um, people really admire about your work. Um, when, I, when I was telling people that I was talking that I'll be I'd be talking to you today. Um, I it was amazing how personal people would become and how quickly they would become emotional about works that you had done. And that's different than my experience in talking about other artists. Um, and and uh, I mean I don't often talk with, with people about my own interviews that I'm having um, or artists I'll be talking to, but. I know so many people who know your work and who talk about your work. I, it's, it's, it's wonderful to hear that you, that, you're, that you incorporate their thoughts into yours, that there's a real cycle there. I, yeah, there's, there's a... Go ahead. Oh, yeah, there's a piece that I'm working on right now for the next Latter-day Saint Art Festival. Um, and it has a, a girl sitting underneath the table crying. Hmm. And I knew why I put that girl under the table, and I knew what she was crying about. But when I showed 
showed it to my twin sister, she immediately remembered the time when she was little and very sad, and she would she would literally sit underneath our table where we were all eating and just, you know, sort of try to comfort herself and cry because she was struggling. And when she saw that on my movie, she assumed that it was her. And I almost felt bad for telling her, no, this is not what it was about. Because if that's what if that's what yeah. she's getting from it, then that adds to the piece. Yeah. It also makes me wonder, in general, I mean, you're in New York. A lot of your audience is, is uh, I... Is our Latter Day Saints probably not exclusively, but there is a lot of work that you do for the Latter Day Saint audience, and and uh, I'm I, I I think that it'd be fair to say that this uh, the Center for Latter Day Saint Arts you've been working with Glenn Nelson and the people there for a while, um, as he did the Mormon the Mormon Artist Group. Um, have you found that that uh, being in New York has 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 led to a different relationship with the with with Latter-day Saints than if you were in Salt Lake City for instance sometimes I think I need to move to Salt Lake <laughs> what makes you say but that because I don't like having to ship my work I and also I don't get to go to any of my openings because it's so far away and I want to be around the community of Mormon artists and there just aren't that many out here but I do think being in New York gives me a lot of mental space and freedom like just having that distance from Salt Lake it the people that I'm surrounded by every day is such a mix of different people and that's why I want to be here because I want to be around all these different types of people and so, so when i go to make a work i feel like the energy of these people comes into me and it's a different energy than what anything that i would find in utah i think and that's the energy that drew me here to the city you've you said um that you're going to be doing a work for the center for latter-day saint arts i know that we we, we can't go into necessarily detail yet it's not time maybe we'll have a big we'll have another discussion with a big reveal later but i do want to ask the question of how has that the center for latter-day saint arts um um op uh, how has that uh um uh, worked as a as, as that relationship been for your work and and for your audience what opportunities has it given you wow i mean it's as soon as Laura Hurtado started working with me, she cultivated me into a Mormon artist. Um, before that, I think it was just him mixed with my work. What was I? What was I making work about? I wasn't quite sure. I was just sort of going from instinct and from what I knew about art history. But once I started working with Laura and Glenn, they helped me to see how special my personal life experience was my identity as uh, an LDS artist was valued in a way that I had it had never been valued before by my circle um, so it really just completely changed the course of my life you know I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if it weren't for Laura Hurtado and Glenn Nelson mm, that's wonderful can you say anything about this upcoming project even a little teaser um, yes, it starts out in a kind of a known place for people who know my work. It starts out with black and white paper animation, but 
I, in my life, I'm making an effort to leave that behind if I can and to find a more healthy, um, happy, colorful place. And so there's a big transition in the movie where I'm trying to ex express that. And it's a new place for me. And it's a, it's a surprise to me now because people will now tell me, oh, your work, it makes me so happy. And I think for, you know, 10 years, nobody ever said, your work makes me so happy. They just thought, oh, that was, you know, that was deep. Oh, that was meaningful. But now it's really cool to have people say, oh, that, that really, you know, lifted my spirit. So I'm trying to make a shift. That I'm really excited. We're going to have to have another conversation, I'm sure, going forward. And so, so keep me, please keep me posted. Before, before we go, I, we'd mentioned at the beginning of the interview that you're, and you had talked about your your husband Kapoon, who is a, he's a fashion photographer, um, that he he'd uh, he'd been uh, he had commentary on your work that had pushed you along at certain stages, and and I'm sure that you've influenced him as well. And I wanted to ask. What is that like? Both of you are, are artists. You do very different kind of work. What kind of influence do you have on one another? We practically work on each other's work. Do you? We both, yeah. I mean, this is something we talked about just the other day. When he has, you know, 100 images that he's trying to winnow down to the best one, we almost always pick the very same image. Interesting. We always we have the same the same eye the same taste and he helps me he's helped me just even with this wild horses piece designing the image that's going to go on the USB you know he was saying you know make it like a Chinese brush painting and because he's had experience with Chinese brush painting and you know extend the legs a little further so it's more wild and he'll just come up with little ideas for my movies like oh make the old man you know stand up and wave his arms around or make the little guy go shooting out the roof of the circus you know and all these little things that he tells me to do end up being people's favorite parts of my movies so that's, we really value each other's opinion that's fast that's wonderful what a great partnership it's going to be it just strikes me as being such a fertile combination the two of you that um maybe i mean are we ever going to see a an annie poon fashion line that is then photographed by him <laughs> <laughs> oh, I tried that. He didn't. He didn't bite. <laughs> oh no! I'm oh. not making. I'm not making the type of uh, incredible avant-garde fashion that he is used to working with. So <laughs> I can barely dress myself. Well, I am. I'm. I'm thrilled that we finally had an opportunity to sit down and talk. I. I have so many more questions. We're going to have to save it for another discussion. And as we talk about your film that's coming up, I really look forward to that. And I'm serious about wanting to sit down and talk with you about that. Again, thank you so much for, for, for meeting with me. Yes, thank you. I would like to thank Annie Poon for joining us. You can get your own copy of Draw Your Way Through the Book of Mormon online on Amazon.com. Is that right, Annie? Yes. And you can see more of Annie's work on her Instagram, Annie Poon. That's at A-N-N-I-E-P-O-O-N. -N -E and of course, at the upcoming Certain Women Art Show opening October 4th in Salt Lake City. For more details on events and locations of the Certain Women Art Show, visit certainwomenartshow.com. To see images of the works we talked about today and to access an archive of interviews, 
visit Zion Art Society's website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab. I am Micah Christensen. Thank you for listening. Thank you.